Salutations, listeners. You're listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. And it's our mission here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. In this episode, Dr. Jazz becomes a super sleuth. That's right, I'm trying to find tunes that borrowed from other tunes with some kind of connecting thread. Or, you can be the judge. Do you think that's just coincidence? Either way, I've got 10 cases of similarities that I'm going to present at you. 20 tracks in total. And I'm going to let you be the judge. I'd love to hear comments. So, tell me if you think some of them sound alike. Tell me if you already knew some of these things were alike. Tell me if you've never even thought about it. Love to hear from you. How do I hear from you? You can comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or you can go to the website, Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast, all one word, dot wordpress, dot com. Let's get to our first case. Thank you. 
judgment time so the very first track we heard was a tune called melody for c like as in the letter c uh and it says it was written by sonny clark and you can find this track on the blue note album of sonny clark leaping and lopin uh this session was recorded in inglewood cliffs new jersey on november 13th 19 1961. So keep that in mind. November of 61. Okay. The track that we heard right after that was Cannonball Adderley from his album The Cannonball Adderley Quintet Plus which featured of course Cannonball on the alto Nat Adderley on the cornet Lewis Hayes on the drum Sam Jones on the bass Quentin Kelly on the piano, but also Victor Feldman on vibes and piano. Doesn't stop there. The track that we heard was Lisa, which is a track not by not composed by Cannonball, but by Victor Feldman. Now, the Cannonball session took place in May, May 11th, 1961. So both of them are in 1961. But it actually goes back further. A little detective work revealed that Victor Feldman actually recorded his tune that he wrote Lisa even earlier on an album of his own called Merry Old Soul. Victor Feldman, Piano and Vibes, with... Cannibal Adderley's Rhythm Section. And he recorded that original take of Lisa in January. January 6th and January 11th, 1961. 
So all three come from 1961. But the original in this case is by Victor Feldman. Not Sonny Clark. Next case.
Judgment Time. So why are we comparing these two tracks? Well, it's that riff. That's the main thing. Okay, so in the first track, we heard Fess, the great Professor Longhair. Nobody's taking anything away from Fess, because I love Fess, and everybody else does too, and God knows he was a, a great inventor of many of the funky New Orleans piano thing that we still got going on today. But that version came out in 1976, Rock and Roll Gumbo album of Fess. But it, it goes back even further than that. I mean, the Animals covered the same song, The Mess Around in 1965 and Dr. John has covered that on his um, Dr. John's Gumbo album and even Ray Charles it was one of his first hits The Mess Around which was on Atlantic Records and you know harkens all the way back to Pine Top's Boogie Woogie you know with the girl with the red dress on and things like that but uh, people say that it was actually Ahmet Erdogan, the president and founder of Atlantic Records, that says that he wrote that song in, like, 1953. And even you could go back to the Cow Cow Blues from, you know, that kind of boogie-woogie thing from Charles Davenport in 1928. But, <laughs> even if you go back to you know, the Cow Cow Boogie and the Cow Cow Blues, I mean, from Charles Davenport in 28. Still not the originations of that riff. That riff came out from our second track, which was recorded July 17th, 1923. And it was a tune called The New Orleans Joys. Solo piano track by none other than the great Jelly Roll Morton. So you had Jelly Roll as the real originator of the mess around riff. So Fess, Dr. John, the animals. I mean, for that matter, Ray Charles and Ahmed Erdogan can thank Jelly Roll because besides it being a great little um, blues tune with the, the, the what he called the Spanish tinge, which is that habanera rhythm, you know, that dotted quarter, dotted quarter, quarter rhythm. He invented what is the riff for the mess around. So this case goes to Jelly Roll Morton. And the more things you find out about this, you kind of wonder, <laughs> did he really invent jazz? That's a different case for a different day. But cases like this that point to Jelly Roll has to make you wonder. Mm -mm -mm. Jelly Roll lives. Next case. And in this next case, make sure you listen to the little trumpet lines or the little half steps. Na, 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 na. That's the clue. Here we go.
right, judgment time. And there's not really much judgment here. It's just one of those eerie coincidences, maybe a reinvention, if you will. So the very first track was a tune called Backseat Betty. Nothing to do with Along Came Betty, just so you know. But it's a tune called Backseat Betty, and it came out on Miles Davis's 1981 album, Man With a Horn. And yeah, you can dress it up in a different style and more 80s rhythms and electric guitars, you know, hitting those long whole notes and held notes and synthesizers and different beats. But that little half-step melody that he played, that's way too similar. And some people could say I'm reaching, but to me it really struck a nerve. It's like, hey, wait a minute. Isn't that that, that same melody from Bitches Brew? From that track, Miles Runs the Voodoo Down? Yeah. And then I listen to that track. That's really eerily similar. Hmm. And that came out ooh, 11 years previous, in 1970. And there was that uh, slight retirement in the middle of those two tracks. Who knows? Maybe Miles just forgot that uh, he had already played that. I mean, he said he never really listened to his old records with the exception of sketches of Spain from time to time, but still, maybe he forgot that he played that. Maybe that melody was just constantly in his head. I don't know. What's your thoughts? Love to hear from you. All right. Miles and Miles. Two different eras of Miles. Same melody. <laughs> Next case. <laughs> Thank you. 
this one's a bit tricky. So the first track we heard was a tune called Riftide, written by, supposedly, Coleman Hawkins. And he was performing it there with Roy Eldridge live from the album Just You, Just Me. And you can even trace Riftide back to Jazz at the Philharmonic um, on a track called Lady Be Good. It was like the very first Jazz at the Philharmonic concert. And uh, it makes people actually beg the question, like, why even call it Lady Be Good when you can, can't even recognize the melody of Lady Be Good? It's just, it's Riftide. Um, so there's that. And then afterwards, we heard the track Hackensack by Thelonious Monk from his Columbia album, Crisscross, which is a fantastic album. It's probably one of my top, top Monk albums. Um, a lot of great tracks on there. Rhythm and Ing, Panonica, T for Two, Crisscross, Hackensack. Um, but chronology would have us say that Coleman Hawkins wrote the tune because chronologically it came first uh, before Hackensack but I've heard a lot of Coleman Hawkins tunes and with that being said I never heard him really write in a half-step motion the way that the end of the bridge is. That's the B section, the middle section of the melody. I've never heard Coleman Hawkins write something so Thelonious Monk-esque. And I'm talking about the part that goes dun-da-do-do-dun, which is still retained in Thelonious Monk's Hackensack. And it seems like the majority of scholars are on the side of Coleman Hawkins on this, and even Robin D.G. Kelly, uh, as it's been said, has made a half-hearted attempt to sit there and say that, you know, Thelonious Monk was, you know, working with a lot of other writers at this time. I mean, you think about, you know, the laundry list of um, compositional credits go to Round Midnight, when we all know it's a Monk tune. I don't think Cootie Williams or anybody else really had a say-so in that. I think they just got their name slapped on it. I think it's completely Monk, every section of it. So the fact that there's this half-step motion at the end of the bridge, makes my gut want to believe that it's a Monk tune and that Coleman Hawkins just took credit for it and called it Riftide. But chronologically speaking, it would fall to Coleman Hawkins by default. So, I would love to open this can of worms up for any listener who'd love to give their two cents. Just click on the comment box on SoundCloud, uh, write into iTunes, or just feel free to send me an email and tell me your um, your two cents. You know what I mean? We may do a uh, follow-up to some of these cases. So. Monk or Hawkins? Which one do you think wrote that melody? All right, next case for you to judge. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. 
So the very first track was a more contemporary jazz track. It's by the great Kamazi Washington. And um, it's, if you will, one of his hits off of his most recent album, Heaven and Earth, two-CD set. Uh, fantastic music, great vibes, um, great grooves, too. And uh, the track that we heard was Street Fighter Moss. And if you've not uh, even seen the video, you should. It's a very cool video. It's almost like um, this Bruce Lee kind of like um, old sage ninja warrior kind of um, mentality or the way that they paint these characters. Uh, but instead of being a ninja warrior or something like that, they're actually uh, video gamers. And Kamasi plays one of the video gamers, and it's like there's this tournament about Street Fighter, but it's very secretive, you know. So, but um, this is not an exact replica. This is more of a stylistic replica that caught my ear, because the second track that we heard was by Eddie Gale from his album... Eddie Gale's Ghetto Music, and we heard A Walk With Thee. And this album came out in September of 1968, whereas Kamasi's album came out in 2018. So we're talking a 50-year jump. Now that's crazy. But we're talking a 50-year jump in stylistic kind of sounds. Now, Eddie Gale was a trumpet player and the leader of this group. And uh, this was recorded for Blue Note Records, I believe. Yes, Blue Note Records in 1968. Uh, and he wanted to blend gospel, soul, blues, spirituality you know, that kind of uh, vibe into the music. And that was perfect for 1968. And to be honest, that, that kind of vibe's perfect in 2018 as well. But um, just the fact that you have these very elongated tracks, um, A Walk With Thee, you know, um, is what we heard, but other titles are included like The Rain, An Understanding, coming of Guilu and the fact that you have like this vocal choir behind you know with that kind of groove and that kind of raw spirituality in the sound it's just it's very similar to me the at least on the on the surface listening to the two you know and I love Eddie Gale's music and I love Kamasi's music but to me I just can't help but feel that there's a similarity there. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think I'm just completely off my rocker? Let me know. Love to hear from you. All right, let's move on to the next case. Stop. 
All right. So this one is just a real open and shut case, you know. Uh, the very first track we heard <clears throat> was Blister in the Sun by the Violent Femmes. And that comes from their 1983 album, The Violent Femmes. Self-entitled album. Um, side note, one of the, and not a lot of people know this, um, the Horns of Dilemma are the crazy horn section that's always with the Violent Femmes. And they've included a past number of uh, great musicians, but some people don't know this. One of the famous members to sit in and be a part of the Horns of Dilemma with the Violent Femmes was none other than John Zorn. There you go, my fellow Zorn heads. But... <sighs> Even as wonderful as that is, it does not help the fact that what we heard after that, the track, was Blues in the Closet by Bud Powell. And that was live at the Golden Circle, but it can be traced back to 1958. Blues in the Closet is also known as a tune called Collard Greens and Black Eyed Peas and was written by Harry Babison and Oscar Pettiford, the great bassist Oscar Pettiford. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty open and shut case. Oscar Pettiford and Harry Babison win this one. Blues in the Closet, 12-bar blues head. Great riff, but why come up with something original when you can steal something really hip, right? Sorry, sorry Violent Femmes. Bud Powell, Oscar Pettiford, and Harry Babison win this one. Blues in the Closet came way before Blister in the Sun. Up next, the next case.
All right. Interesting case here. The very first track we heard was Hottentot, which is in many circles become like a modern standard, uh, especially with collegiate age kids. I know I was one of them whenever I was in college. You know, a lot of cats I played with one knew at least three to four tunes off of the album A Go Go. Uh, which featured John Schofield playing alongside the organ trio of Medeski, Martin, and Wood. Uh, They went on to record a couple more albums. Uh, Occasionally they still get together today, but that first album on the Verve label, 1998, A Go-Go by John Schofield. Killer album, beginning to end. But Hot and Tot, had that nice groove to it. Da-da, 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 da-da. Now, that was 1998, and the second track that we heard was a tune called Crosswind by Billy Cobham. Now, Crosswind actually came out in 1974. And was written by the great drummer Billy Cobham. Um, killer personnel on the thing, too. Um, John Williams, Lee Pastora, George Duke, Billy Cobham, Garnett Brown, uh, Randy and Michael Brecker on the horns, and John Abercrombie on the guitar. And... In some circles, that's where it would just end. You know what I mean? Like, okay, there we go. It came before. He just stole the the groove riff. You know what I mean? But John Schofield actually worked for Billy Cobham as his guitarist about a year after this album came out with the Billy Cobham-George Duke band. He played with uh, Billy Cobham and George Duke for about two years before recording with Charles Mingus and taking over Pat Metheny's guitar chair in the Gary Burton Quartet. So, this lends me to believe that maybe this is what happened. John Schofield was on tour with Billy Cobham and the George Duke Band, and of course they're going to play many of their uh, hits. So, he probably played for years, or at least hundreds of times during those two years of touring, He probably played crosswinds, who knows how many times. And that groove is embedded in his subconscious. And it has been documented that as he and Medeski and Martin Wood were all together in the studio, they were just jamming to try to find tunes, you know, rather and and like come up with them very organically as opposed to, you know, pre-composing them and then bringing them to the session, etc. So they just kind of sketched out some ideas. So that was probably buried in Schofield's subconscious. And that same riff from Crosswinds of doing it God knows how many times on tour with Billy Cobham and George Duke, da-da, da-da, came about. So these kind of go more hand-in-hand than one may think. And I think it's an honest oversight. I, I think that it was just there. It was in his subconscious. I don't think that there was any kind of nefarious 
uh, mentality going on with this one. If you disagree, let me know. Love to hear from you. All right. Next case. Thank you. 
So, the first track that we heard, of course, was the infamous In the Mood by the Glenn Miller Orchestra. It became their theme song, you know, for a while, or their biggest hit. Uh, it is like one of the anthems of the big band era. Uh, people associate big band music with In the Mood. You can't get away from it. It's a staple. And that is one of the best-known jazz tunes in all of the jazz canon, if you will. But that recording came out August 1st, 1939. The track that we heard second was actually the very first version of In the Mood, which was by Edgar Hayes and his orchestra, which actually featured Joe Garland who wrote the tune in the mood. So there you go. Um, he arranged it uh, along with uh, Wingy Manone and Andy Razaf. Andy Razaf, who worked very closely with Fats Waller. Um, and it's a very similar arrangement. You have the same opening kind of intro with the arpeggios and the saxophones, and you have a saxophone duel, except where there's two tenor saxes in the Glenn Miller version, you have two baritone saxes in the Edgar Hayes version. But even that is not the original in the mood. The original in the mood was actually uh, Tar Paper Stomp, which was originally by... Wingy Manone, the great trumpet player, who actually had a claw, like a metal claw for one hand, but a fantastic performer. Um, yeah, the reason I'm comparing these two is because they're so similar in arrangements. Now, which is a more dramatic arrangement? Probably the Glenn Miller, because it, it, uh, the dynamics get softer and softer and softer and softer and softer at the end, and then there's this rim shot, and then the brass just kapow, you know what I mean? And they hit you over the head with it, you know. Um, and they have that huge at the end, you know, so even more dramatic effect, um, which is a testament to Glenn Miller's uh, arrangement. Um, but the strange thing is that they actually sold the arrangement to Artie Shaw before they did Glenn Miller, and Artie Shaw just wouldn't record it. He played it at concerts, but he wouldn't record it. And then Glenn Miller took it and killed it. You know what I mean? Sold a million kajillion copies. But the reason I chose Edgar Hayes is because there are so many similarities in the arrangement. And nobody knows who Edgar Hayes is, but everybody knows who Glenn Miller is. So I'm trying to shed some light on Edgar Hayes and all that was going on there. A great band leader. Killer band leader. Um... Yeah, and strangely enough, In the Mood was the B-side to Stardust, not the A-side. It was the B-side for Edgar Hayes, and it did very well. So there you go. That's your little uh, factoid on that. Next case. Pause. 
Shit, chico. Yo vine de Miami y este es parte de mi religión y no me diga que me calle. Tú has el derecho de tener el silencio. Rien que tú digas va a ser contra ti. Entonces, ¿qué tú? ¿Qué tú?
so this case again is miles and miles of miles. The first track was from Miles Davis's 1985 album, You're Under Arrest, and was a tune that he calls One Phone Call slash Street Scenes. And there's longer versions of One Phone Call from Miles playing live, uh, where they just reinforce that same melody over and over and over and over again. But as I was listening to Jack Johnson one day, the tribute to Jack Johnson album by Miles Davis, which is where the second track comes from, uh, and I found uh, a shorter version that goes and cuts right to it. So instead of listening to all 26 minutes, we actually heard from the complete Jack Johnson recordings box set. We heard um, right off take 12, which, you know, they pieced together these jam sessions and made them these two very long tracks right off in Yesternow. So the one that we heard was take 12, that piece from right off. And Jack Johnson came out in 1971. Yeah, February of 1971. But it was recorded in February and April of 1970. And it was the companion to the the film, uh, the documentary, a tribute to Jack Johnson by Bill Caton. Um, The interesting part, it was a huge feature for guitarist John McLaughlin. And what we heard on that track was Billy Cobham, again, on the drums, Michael Henderson on the bass, Herbie Hancock on the organ, John McLaughlin, of course, on the electric guitar, Steve Grossman on the soprano sax, and Miles on the trumpet. Now, the interesting part is that on the first track, we actually heard John Schofield on guitar. But even on that album... You're Under Arrest, in 1985, John McLaughlin makes a cameo on three tracks. Ms. Morrison, Katia, and Katia Prelude. So, there you go. Um, but, once again, is this Miles just reinventing himself and using, like, hey, I like that, I like that riff, I'm going to use that again. You know, or is it just, you know, Miles not listening to himself again? And just sitting there going, yeah, no, there, I, I, I don't know, I feel this groove. And it was just subconsciously in the back of his head from when he recorded the Jack Johnson session. Who knows? If anybody knows the definitive answer, reach out, let me know. All right, we've got one more last case for you here on the Super Sleuth edition of the Dr. Jazz podcast. So listen on, listen tight.
one that last case was a track called love for sale that's right the old cole porter love for sale but it's from chet baker live at ronnie scott's and of course he had recorded that somewhere you know in the very late 70s and before, well, then the track that we heard after that is the origination of the bass line that Chet used in Love for Sale. None other than the classic Chameleon by Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters. So, how do you take, if you're Chet Baker, how do you take a standard that's been done to death, like Love for Sale, make it interesting? Easy. Just parse down the killer bass line that the world knows by Herbie Hancock. Herbie Hancock can make anything groovier. And Chet knew that. So there you go. Which do you like better though? That's the, the key. What is more inventive? To come up with Chameleon and all those sound effects in that bass line? Or to take a parsed down version of that and really put in a funkier lifeblood into a standard like Love for sale. Anything's game with Chet Baker. 
Well, I appreciate you listening. Hopefully you found some interesting comparisons, some food for thought. And I appreciate you coming on this adventure of Dr. Jazz, Super Sleuth. As the great Duke Ellington says, we do love you madly. Thank you for listening, and until next time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Y'all be good now. Cousin Jazz, we trust.